Welcome to Done to Death, a podcast about horror movies. I'm Ali Reese, and uh, with me is Peter. Hello, I'm Peter. Hi, Ali. How's it going? Um, yeah, really good. Thanks. Really excited to get started on this pilot episode. Bro, what what are we doing? What are we talking about? Well, we are talking about horror movies because I think there's not enough horror movie podcasts in the world. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was my exact worry when you pitched the idea to me. <laughs> yeah, but I think we've got quite an interesting take on things. Um, you're kind of horror veteran. You've watched hundreds of horror films, probably. Um, and I've watched very few. But it's not because I wasn't always a horror fan. It's because I just haven't been around other horror fans that much. Mm-hmm. And until we started recently doing our little movie night, I ha- didn't have anyone really to watch horror films with. So I kind of watched a few of the classics when I was a teenager. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I've got so many gaps in my knowledge. Um, and I think seeing that build up over time um, and how my kind of understanding of the horror genre and my how I feel about different films and that kind of thing over time is going to be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I would first of all, I would say I don't necessarily count myself as a horror veteran. I've probably seen more horror films than than most. Um, but I love talking about horror films. Horror is the, the genre that I love most of all. Um, so, yeah. So so uh, th- th- that's the reason why you, you want to do this, this kind of project, this podcast. You want to just experience some of the, the gaps you've got in your uh, knowledge of of historic and contemporary horror? Yeah, I just really enjoy the process of watching the films and then also discussing them afterwards. I like being pushed to look at things through a critical eye, which I don't think I'd necessarily do if we were just watching the film, eating a pizza and going home. Also, from a purely sort of selfish point of view, I want to add another arrow to my quiver of kind of content creation skills. And I think audio editing and podcast creation is um, a handy one to have. Um, So yeah, if you experience any shonky editing, it's it's me. (laughs) It's because I've never (laughs) edited anything before and I'm I'm doing my best. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a learning experience for, for us all, I think. So from my point of view, I, I think what you said really struck a tone with me. I would love to develop my skills in talking and thinking about things critically as well and really kind of, I don't know, maybe communicate my thoughts or understand things more critically as I watch them and, and think about them. I think that's something I'd, I'd love to learn more. Um, and I must say, one of the other things is it's just nice to do something with you, Ali. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, no, absolutely. The few times we've collaborated before... Um, so I'm a, a streamer on Twitch and I've had uh, Peter as a guest a couple of times. We've played uh, mostly SnowRunner together and it's been an absolute <laughs> yes. blast. Um, that, it, as far from a horror experience as you can get, I think. <laughs> well, you've seen my driving. I don't know if that's strictly true. <laughs> 
Oh, fantastic. Well, I mean, it, it, it seems we're speaking about other content. I do do a, a podcast with, with someone else, which is loosely horror-themed, I guess. Yeah, it's in about, a very, about, like, about... general way, right? Yeah, it's it's, a, it's about a, a a horror card game, I guess you'd say. Not particularly scary, but, but <laughs> the, the theming's there. <laughs> well, it depends what, what your luck's like on the day, right? Yeah. So, so what's what's the format of our episodes going to be? So we thought um, that we'd structure the podcast the way we've been structuring our movie nights, which is to pick two films that are loosely related in some way and um, do like a little kind of double bill. The horror double bill is an established thing. You reliably inform me. Yes, yes. (laughs) And um, yeah, that seems to work well. I think it gives us lots of opportunities to explore... Um, commonalities, differences, uh, evolution from, you know, maybe older films to newer films. I, I just think it's a format that gives us lots of uh, options, really, so that things won't get stale. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Yeah, I'm, this, this sounds a great idea that you just thought up off the top of your head. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, never previously discussed this. So, so because this is the first episode, we're dwelling a little bit before we dive into the first film. So, I do have one kind of last broad question to ask you before we start, Ali. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. What is it? A, what is it about horror films that you enjoy? Ooh, that is a good question. I th- oh. when I try and think about what it is I like about films, I often really like character-driven media where you really kind of develop characters and you as as a viewer or a reader or a listener or whatever um really feel for them and you really empathize with them but then on the other side of things as well i really enjoy a lot of technical mastery you know i, d- I don't always have the vocabulary to describe it but i enjoy you know like clever camera work and like interesting editing and like effective sound design and i think that Horror films are often held to a very high standard in those kinds of things because people can be a little bit snobbish and they kind of go, oh, well, you know, horror films, it's just jump scares and cheap to make and no skill and you get junior directors to make them and it doesn't matter. But I think if you actually look at them, there's a lot that counteracts that point and so much of horror movies is really clever. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I think that it's also a genre that can cast an incredibly wide net across themes and stories, antagonists, protagonists. There's so much space to do lots of interesting things. Yeah. One horror film can be so, so different from another horror film. I don't think of myself as someone who gets scared easily either. I, I, I don't know, maybe we'll watch something that really does put the shivers <laughs> Scare at the me. Scare the crap out of you, yeah. yeah <laughs> we'll see. But I kind of like suspense and thriller kind of elements and that kind of thing. There's just a, a lot of different stuff going on in the genre that interests me, that draws my attention. Yeah, I, I'm generally more interested in watching a horror film than, than any other genre of film. So. Yeah, it, I mean, it's interesting what you've said there. I agree with a lot of what you've said, and I think it's going to be obvious when I give my answer to this question yeah. that we've both picked films that reflect <laughs> the <laughs> things we, we, we like in the genre, and I think probably are, is a good example of our of your point about the breadth of the genre as well. 
Yeah. There's probably a lot similar to you in, in, in I probably phrase it ever so slightly differently. For me, I, one of the things about horror is it tends to be, I guess the word is maybe visceral. There's a lot mm. of fears. Fears are very kind of visceral gut feeling, isn't it? Yes. Um, and when you translate into films what makes people scared, it can be almost like quite base um, and it can deal with quite raw and quite powerful emotions. Um, we can think of films, horror films, that are about, like, say, grief or um, or loss or uh, anger and, and all these kind of things. Um, they can be very powerful emotions. Um, so it's 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 a great medium for talking about uh, those kind of scary, scary uh, everyday feelings. I think we'll see. There's there's some of the films, the horror films, I really like. There's there's lots of uh, queer horror films. There's uh, horror films about um, puberty and fear about what's happening to your body. <laughs> um, there's there's all sorts of stuff like that 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 is explored through horror films. So I find it fascinating. I don't know. I just I, I love watching films from that point of view. And then in fact, also from the technical point of view, which, which you mentioned, I'm a really big fan of practical effects in films. Yes. Uh, I, I I think. Lots of horror films tend to be on, have to do a lot with a small amount of money. Yeah. Um, especially early horror films. Well, I say early, I mean, sort of, yeah, before we had widespread and easy access to, to uh, computer effects. There's lots of horror films which have incredible practical effects. You mentioned Nightmare on Elm Street earlier. And that has got just some absolutely stunningly horrible effects. Yes. Like with the tongue coming out the foam and all stuff like that. <laughs> I love all that stuff. That's just like my favourite thing. And again, you'll see from the film I've picked. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you'll see you see why where that's that struck a chord with me. Well should we should we get ready to dive into the first film or have you got Yeah, I think um just to introduce, we decided for this first episode the the kind of pairing would be what we Consider to be our favourite horror films, mine and, and Peter's. Where do you want to start with? Well, the first film we're looking at today is The Thing. Uh, do you want to introduce us to The Thing, Ali, with a, with a brief synopsis? Yes. So The Thing is is, P- is Peter's choice. And it is a an 80s film um, by John Carpenter. It's basically the story of an alien being who can assimilate and mimic any other life form that it comes across and it touches down in um, Antarctica and we basically see it play havoc with the psyches of 12 men locked in an Antarctic winter. Yeah so so I think worth mentioning that the thing landed in, in Antarctica what Tens, hundreds of thousands of years ago? Yeah, I think they say a hundred thousand years ago, based on the yeah. ice. And it's it's brought up and uh, taken back to a research base by another Norwegian research crew. Yes. After which it, 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 it manages to, to reach the American research crew by disguising itself as a dog. Yeah, uh, I, think, <laughs> I think it's actually really interesting... Um, because that to me shows us immediately how smart the thing is, right? Yeah. Um, becoming a dog, it lets the the thing um, traverse the snow easily, um, and a dog is one of the easiest things for a human to trust. 
um, mm-hmm. man's best friend, yeah. that kind of thing. So the Americans let it in with no question. See the Norwegians flying a helicopter along, sh- shooting at this dog, throwing grenades at it. And the Americans still take the dog in without even stopping to think about what might be going on. I think one of the things that that's that's really compelling about the film. I think there's a, there's a few things I've watched the thing. I I can't tell you how many times. Um, but I I enjoy watching it again every time I watch it, and I think there's a few reasons for that. I think part of the mystery and the horror from that the film comes from. A lot of, a lot of how the thing operates is not explicit. Yes. Like you say, it it hides as a dog, and actually that's something I'd never considered before. You know, a, a dog is an easy way f- for uh, trust to be gained, but but we don't have any insight into the thing's psyche. Yeah. Does it know? Acti- <laughs> yeah. Who knows? No one knows. We don't know if, say, the thing knows who else is a thing. Yeah, no, yeah. that's always... And you, we don't know if a person, once they've been uh, infected, do they know that they're the thing? Are they kind of yeah. trapped inside there trying to repel it? Are they unaware? Or are they completely taken over? You know, it's kind of really never explained completely. Um, yeah, but, but, but you know enough to understand the tension yes. uh, in, in the camp between, between the men there. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to just dive right in and say there are lots of points where the the characters in the film don't know who has been infected but also the viewers we don't ever really know for sure who is or who isn't infected Um, there's a great shot where the dog kind of goes into a room with someone and we don't know who that someone is they're only shown like in the shadow um, mm-hmm. So we don't know where it starts, but um, so on the watch on the watch through that I did um, before recording, mm-hmm. something that I noticed is the dog runs up and immediately starts uh, licking one of the characters. Yeah, and yeah. it's then explained later that you know any amount of cellular material can be enough to kind of infect you, so we should all prepare our own food and only eat out of cans. So I'm like wondering. Is it immediately straight in gonna spread Infecting. my genetic material <laughs> straight away with my saliva? I didn't think this was that kind of podcast, Tally. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right, and and it's it's very hard, even on rewatches, as watching it as many times as I've watched it, um, to to draw a, a like a definitive timeline of who's infected and when they're infected. There are actually characters. I think you probably never find out whether they're they're infected, what their yeah. state was. Well, Fuchs, 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 yeah, Fuchs. Um, he just Fuchs, you know he sorry, disappears. Fuchs, Fuchs yeah. yeah, he just disappears. We we don't ever find out what happened to him. Did he get turned? Did he die of exposure because it's you know Antarctica winter? You know, there's a lot of characters where there's no resolution at all. Yeah. Yeah. One of the bits I noticed when we watched it a few weeks ago uh, is uh, Blair, when he gets locked in the shed. Yeah. When they return to him later on, he's prepared a noose. Yes. And I said this to you at the time, like, was he going to kill himself? But then he decided not to. And was that because 
he realized or he, he it, the, the thing infecting him had taken over because we do know he's infected at some point yeah but we but don't know not... when in the film that happens yeah um because i don't think he was infected when they took him out to the shed mm-hmm. or at least if if he was he was doing a very good job of like hiding it by smashing up all the transport and communication <laughs> yeah yeah I think like it, it really before I get into the one of the things I really really love about this film I think it the, the feeling the feeling of isolation and paranoia that it breeds you really feel like they are it's 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 almost like being in space how remote they are yeah uh, you get the feeling that there's there's no one else anywhere remotely close yeah well the uh, the, the, the closest people are probably the Norwegians and they don't have a common language. Yeah. And then it's revealed pretty early on that they've been completely out of communication for at least two weeks. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think th- that feeling of, of isolation and paranoia, just really, really good. And I think what Carpenter's really good at is, like, the slow build-up of tension and these, like, explosive arguments that, that, that are kind of building up over time between the, the, the people in, the, in this, the research station. Yeah. You really get a feeling of, like their animosity and their, their kind of frustration with each other and the yeah. fact that they are scared. Yes. Even if they don't want to admit it. <laughs> um, it's quite interesting. I, I feel almost like we're supposed to get the idea that things are maybe quite difficult right from the off because it's the first week of winter, someone says that um, right at the beginning, and McCready, played by... Kurt Russell, mm-hmm. starts the film off by pouring his whiskey into a chess computer. <laughs> yeah, that I'd beaten him. <laughs> and I just, like, don't destroy one of your only forms of entertainment <laughs> for the long winter in the first week. So it baffles me that this guy is looked to for leadership and kind of sensible decisions throughout the film. Like, I don't... It kind of... It's like, well, if he's the best they've got... <laughs> Oh, it's. I think honestly, one of the all-time great character introductions. Yeah. Because you you straight away understand what kind of guy he is, and he's is a guy who's not going to let anyone get the better of him. Yeah. Even a computer. Um, yeah. But it, he, it's he's, he's someone who's going to fight even in a no-win situation to try and find a way out of it. <laughs> but you know, he's smart enough to be enjoying a game of chess. Like he's obviously yeah. got that chess computer in his in his private little shack, so he's kind of smart but like um, impulsive. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it's a it's a battle of wits as well, isn't it? Chess. Yeah, it's about outmaneuvering your your opponent. Yep. So the other thing I want I'd, I'd love to talk about for the thing is the practical effects. Oh yeah, they are fantastic. To my, did you watch the Blu-ray in the end? Yes. Because I know. Th- I don't know what when your Blu-ray's from. The version I've got on Blu-ray, they really... I think it was remastered. I think some of the Carpenter films, like Halloween, they almost lose something in the upgrade to high definition. Right, yeah, um, because you kind of... You want it to be grainy and dark and not quite be able to see where the bad guys are. Exactly. But I think for, for the thing, um, the the... The update for the, the the physical scenes where they're doing that the autopsies on the thing they the still look amazing are, oh my god it's amazing yeah and the, the practical effects have stood up so well 
Now yeah. I know you haven't seen this, but but they did they did a, a prequel to the thing in 2011, and that is about what happened at the Norwegian camp. Okay. So leading up to the essentially the opening sequence in this film with the Norwegian helicopter and the dog, uh, I think actually that happens over the credits in the prequel. Ah. I think it's maligned. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a terrible film. I think it, it does some interesting. There's some interesting ideas, like fleshes out a few more details about the thing uh, in an interesting way. Like they find out that the thing will eject any foreign bodies in a person, like say fillings, earrings, oh. things like that. And it gives them another way to try and figure out who the thing is. And the other thing I think it does well is it uses the language barrier quite well because there's American and there's Norwegian staff on the base. Oh, right. Uh, and wow. They, yeah, they can't necessarily all speak to each other um, in their languages. And they have ways of speaking without the other people understanding. So I think that that's quite a smart idea. And, and I like the use of like a foreign language, in, even in quite a big budget film. Yeah, I think but, if anything is going to build up paranoia, it's not knowing what other people are talking about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. But... The thing it got the most criticism for, really, was the the, the special effects, which were done uh, CGI. And this was in 2011, so it's that they've not held up well, as well as not being a great idea in the first place. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but CGI just doesn't hold a candle to really, really, really good practical effects. Yeah. Um, and, and reportedly, they were going to use practical effects... But the studio got a bit spooked when they visited the set and they <laughs> thought the practical effects didn't look very good. Um, but this was before they were lit right and, and you know, um, yeah. all this kind of stuff. Uh, and it's, it's a real shame. I think actually you, there might be some footage floating around of what the practical effects were going to be like. Um, and they were just as impressive as they would have been in, uh, in 1982 in the original thing. Um, so that all said, I think the practical effects are just a thing to behold. It's it's worth watching the film just to see the effects in it, really. Yeah. Um, not not only are like the static shots of the, the thing as they're like kind of pulling flesh off it, it's this all kind of gross, squelchy stuff. The kind of maybe the signature sequence where um one of the, the, the characters' chest cavity opens up and bites the arm off another that whole sequence oh, there. That's so good. There's all sorts of goo and bubbles. I think uh, Rob Bottom nearly burnt himself alive because he'd used so much solvent and gunk. Wow. <laughs> and he, he was underneath the, the table at the time, like, pulling stuff. Um, and there were so many solvents there. I think it, I think it did catch fire and he <laughs> nearly burnt himself to a crisp in it. Oh, no. Um, suffering for his craft. Well, I mean, it's a true blessing to films that he did not... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think the the only the only time it falls down it is to the end. There's there's some stop motion animation, um, which I think doesn't quite hold up as well as the rest of it because you're used to seeing kind of the animatronics and things like that. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, no, it's I just I go back to it again and again and watch watch those sequences. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Uh, so just to round off the conversation about the thing, then, uh, unless you've got anything else you want to add. It's weird and pissed off is maybe one of the greatest movie understatements of all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, nobody trusts anyone anymore and we're all very tired. It's also yeah. an exceptionally good line. The, so what I was going to ask you about is the ending. Oh, uh, yes. 
Now, before we talk about the ending, I'll say that this film was one of Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy. Yeah. Which all dealt with world-ending threats in one way or the other. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think of the ending? I think the ending is really something special. I think, I think sadly, it probably contributed to the fact that the film didn't do very well in box offices and uh, critics' eyes when it was released because you you end up not knowing if the heroes won um yeah i think you know you you end up with two people left alive and is one of them infected are both of them infected and neither of them infected it like mm. does it matter because they're both gonna die anyway because they don't have anywhere to go and it's f- antarctica and there are so many theories, like my head kind of spins a bit when I think about all the different interpretations that there are of this scene. And, mm. and like, I'm sure that I've barely even scratched the surface when I've been thinking about it. Um, I think it's an absolutely masterful ending. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the ending more than anything. There's, there's a line Child's character says earlier on where he's talking to one of the other characters and he says something like, if I was a copy, a perfect copy, how would you ever know? Yeah. Uh, and to me, the ending, um, the whole film, it feels like a puzzle Puzzle you could solve. Like you could sit down with a pen and a bit of paper and track out who's infected when and solve the ending. There's some clue hidden somewhere. But but what Child says is true. You, you Because it's a perfect copy, there's almost no way to tell. And yeah. that ending... I think captures that perfectly, that theme of the rest of the film of, of paranoia and distrust. You've got two men sitting there. Neither is able to tell whether the other person is, is genuine or not. And they each know the other person's thinking the same thing. Um, yeah. And I think it's it's deliberately set up so that there's not an answer for you to work out. Um, yeah. And if nothing else, it makes nerds really annoyed. <laughs> they can't figure <laughs> things like this out. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's really, really good evidence that supports either of them being the thing, because we see MacReady's ripped clothes. That's kind of um, a signature of of being assimilated, is it rips your clothes off. And we see MacReady's ripped up clothes. And then we also see Charles just disappear for for a while during the ending Mm -hmm. sequence when um, they're fighting the kind of Blair thing. But then, you know, who can say? Who can say? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You can't. That's the point. Um, Real. Well, should we, should we move on to our next film? Well, just one thing really quick. Oh, I, I, I feel like I would not be doing my job properly if I didn't have one tiny little criticism. Oh, yes, please, please. Films without women or anyone who's not a man uh have really started to get on my nerves as I've gotten older. <laughs> and I know that there are people out there who will say that that's part of the point of this film. It's all about, you know, men being shut up together and testosterone and, like, men, you know, men competing and kind of not trusting each other and that kind of thing. But it does not quite fly with me. Like, it's something doesn't sit right about it being so male-centric. Like, I, I want there to be some female members of this cast. Is the chess computer not enough for you? No. No, because... Well, I mean, no, but also all we see of her is MacReady calling her a bitch and pouring yeah. um, <laughs> and whiskey into her. a circuit once, yeah. 
was voiced by Carpenter's wife, actually. Yeah, um, I can't remember what her name is, but yeah. Adrienne Barbeau, I believe. Uh, yes, that runs Yeah, no, no, I, I, I would tend to agree. And I think if, if, if it existed in a world where um, it wasn't the norm for films to be full of men, you could accept it. Uh, but that's not the world it exists in. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in the eighties. I mean, when when I've when I've with my partner, we've gone back and watched watched films. Um, that kind of thing is really striking when it happens with a more recent context. When I watched this when I was a kid, I, I never gave that a second thought. Um, but it sticks out so much these days, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's part of what's interesting about me coming at these films from. You know, a later point in culture, and then also like a kind of an older person's perspective. And uh, I think that's actually a good segue into our next film. Yeah. So, the second film that we are going to talk about is The Silence of the Lambs, which I chose. Peter, do you want to give us a wee synopsis? Yeah. So, Silence of the Lambs, released in 1991, based on a book. By Thomas Harris. I've forgotten his name, Thomas Harris, and directed by Jonathan Demi. Yep. I believe his name is pronounced, starring um, Jodie Foster and um, Anthony Hopkins, most notably. And I'll read my, my synopsis. Budding FBI agent Clarice Starling consults dangerous serial killer and cannibal Hannibal Lecter for assistance in capturing another killer who is abducting and skinning young women with large behinds. Well, that's the man who's prepared his synopsis in advance. <laughs> I, I, I hesitated about adding the large behinds section, but it is specifically referenced in the film on more than one occasion. Yes, um, and that's because he is starving the, the women and skinning them to make a suit out of that skin so yes. it, it, he needs a lot of surface area I suppose is it yeah is it hanging off so it's easier to skin or something yeah maybe actually you know I, I want to pick myself up on that and this is maybe a controversial topic maybe something controversial to say um, so Ted Levine's character um, Buffalo Bill or Jane Gum the the killer that everyone's trying to catch I don't think it's necessarily right to always refer to uh him, I think there's no definitive answer, and I think that we should refer to uh, that character as they. Um, and I think we'll get more into that um, in a in a little bit. Yeah. I'd, okay. So, so where should we start? I mean, what you've mentioned is, is something I would love to dive into. Yeah. Um, but do we want to do we want to talk about things we enjoyed, the more practical elements of the film? Where do you want to start? Yeah. Let's do that. I think. Um, so, for context, The Silence of the Lambs is the third film ever, um, and still, still only the th- there are only three films who have this um, to sweep the Academy Awards. It won what best movie, best director, best actor, best actress, best something else. It got five. Um, I think was it not the second film? No, the third. The previous ones were One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and ah, it happened one night. Yeah. That one. Yeah, I thought I, for some reason I thought it was the second one. Um, I mean that that's fascinating, especially for a film that uh, is a is a horror film. Yeah, well, right? 
this leads to a lot of interesting conversations where people will try and tell you that it's not really a horror film, it's a thriller or a psychological um, police procedural, <laughs> that kind of thing. I, I don't know why people are so reluctant to like horror films and see them gain crit- critical acclaim. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, they do <laughs> it's a good to. film, therefore it can't be a horror film. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't worry, it's one of the okay horror films, psychological <laughs> horror film. It's yeah. a bit more, it's elevated. I, I think... There is a lot good to say about the film. I think there's so much fantastic acting, there's fantastic camera work, there's fantastic editing. The um, the performances, like especially between Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster, are really incredible. Like the the work they do and the things they convey with just their voices and their faces, yeah, is. Well, I think you'd struggle to find anything like it in any other film. The, the camera focuses so often, and I think actually interesting. What I, I've not seen this film that many times. It was it was surprisingly late that I saw this film. I think it was probably only in the last sort of ten years that I saw this. Um, on this watch, the thing that jumped out at me is how crucial a character Crawford is as well. Mm. And I think he's a really interesting character, and I think he's very well. Um, I think there's some really good characterization in him um, that really struck me when I watched it this time. But but no, exactly like you say, the camera like goes in on their faces so much, and it's often it's just square on with them looking down the barrel of the camera. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene right at the beginning, right after the opening sequence, where she's she's running, um, doing her training. Oh, you know, she, can we just talk about that opening sequence where yeah, she she's coming up a hill? And she's so tiny and it looks so insurmountable and she's like putting everything she's got into pulling herself up this hill. I think it's perfectly encapsulates the entire feeling of the movie. Yeah, there's lots of scenes like that as well. There's yes. one where they're at the, the funeral home and oh. she's, it, it's almost exactly the same except all of the trees are police policemen <laughs> instead. She's totally surrounded by men who are eyeballing her. Oh, the elevator um, scene. Yes. <sighs> Yeah, no, it, it, absolutely fascinating. Um, but as I was saying, she, she comes in and she goes to see Crawford straight away. But you again get that shot where he's just looking down the barrel of, a, of the camera at her, telling her how dangerous Hannibal Lecter is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I really, I, all the way through, I loved those bits where where you, you pulled inside the, the the character and you get the POV, POV shot. Yes. Um, brings you into the characters, really kind of builds the tension, I think. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think you really get a sense of what it's like to be in these conversations, to have someone's focus be so entirely on you. And I think Clarice especially is in lots of situations where she is the centre of attention and not necessarily always in good ways. That aforementioned elevator scene, when she gets into that elevator, every man in that elevator looks at her and she's being utterly singled out. And I think that comes up again and again. I think just the kind of the the punchline to all this is the scene in uh, where James using the night vision goggles. Oh, that scene is uh, amazing. <laughs> it's it's terrifying. Yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a. I, I wrote in my notes. It's it's so interesting seeing that in this film because it's the the mark of like a, a found footage film. The 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 night vision in a dark building with mm. someone being hunted. That's just like pure found footage horror film. 
Um, and here it is in this in this hoity-toity psychological thriller. <laughs> yeah, with such like intricate editing and shooting. Um, but but again, it it positions uh, Clarice like kind of right in the middle um, as such a vulnerable character yes. with another character who has almost total control over her. Yeah, um, able to do what they want. Yeah, I think there are some scenes that almost feel kind of delirious, and I, I mm. this. The the night vision scene is one of them where um the the killer is is like reaching out and almost touching Clarice's face. You know, mm-hmm. you can see the hand kind of coming and it is sort of right there. And it's kind of, you know, is that real? Is that in her head? Is it in the killer's head? Is it in the the viewer's head, you know? They do such clever things with that night vision stuff and that whole basement actually the basement is a fascinating reflection on jane gum who lives in it there's a scene where clarice like burst through a door and it'd been kind of locked up and it was like a bath with with a, a cadaver in it and it was as if jane gum had just gone well i'm kind of done with that now locked it off boarded it up and then just moved on and like i don't know dug a new room out of the earth <laughs> yeah 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 there's a real like the the, the dungeon feel of it mm-hmm. and what i thought was interesting as well was how medieval the prison where um uh catherine Martin. hannibal is as well oh where hannibal is yeah the, it's the, like, it's, it's like meant a, to be an insane asylum, but it really feels yeah. like a dungeon. Yeah, it's a little brickwork, and they don't have any windows or anything like that. Well, I think they're the 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 really really high security people, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, I think the that set is actually incredibly clever with the like glass with the holes in it, um, yeah. because it. It actually really brings home the point of the the camera being right in the characters' faces. If they were prison bars, you wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. It disappears when you get close enough to it. Yeah. The glass. So it's just the characters looking at each other. And it also... You forget that there's a separation between them. Yeah, well, it also allows for an amazing shot where, like, um, the camera is looking at Clarice... But you can see Hannibal's reflection. Yeah, that happens in one of the later meetings, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it's a, a clever way of, of kind of getting both of their faces at the same time. Should we dive a bit more into... I guess I would say the themes are both gender and sexual politics. Yes. And I've got something I'd like to say about that, but I'll, I'll hold on to that for a minute. I think this... It's from the very opening... It's apparent that that's that's a theme. It's explicitly why Crawford sends Clarice to see Hannibal, isn't it? Yes. Because he thinks he'll be disarmed and talk to a young woman rather than another man. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that we get a kind of a fake out and then another fake out because you think it hasn't worked, like just seen through this ploy, but then... Because Clarice is this vulnerable young woman, one of the other prisoners assaults her, essentially throws a handful of sperm in her face. <laughs> Sexually assaults, yeah, yeah. Um, and that in itself is, is what makes Hannibal come around, because he, he said, what did he say, um, discourtesy is unspeakably ugly to me. Yeah, um, yeah. But you wouldn't have got that if, if it wasn't a young woman. 
Yeah. This is what... So, there's a line where... I know the line has been that uh, James' character... I'm gonna. I'm doing air quotes on this. Isn't really transgender or transsexual as they use is the term they use in the film. Yeah, and this really bugged me. Yeah, and it, <laughs> it should sort of, do. It, it plays into a lot of transphobic myths. Really, is, this is, whole, is the fundamental so, point here. Yeah, so I want to say I first watched this film when I was about twelve or thirteen, and mm. I absolutely loved it. I think because it captured so much of. The characters. I I was a big fan of the books as well. Yeah. Um, and at that age, I was not thinking critically. I came. I come from a really small village, um, and my worldview was so tiny. So I I kind of I watched this film a couple of times at that age, and I thought that's it. That's my favorite film. Done. And now rewatching it, probably for the first time in eight years, nine years, I'm struck by how transmisogynistic it is. Yeah, and, and but I will say before, I think it's understandable. Um, it, it's got an unusual protagonist in the film. It, it's it's good to see a, a woman in that kind of role in the film. Right? Yes. It, having the lead role as, as an FBI agent. And it's really good that it portrays a kind of accurate environment of... While it's, it's never really openly misogynistic towards her you absolutely get the feel that yeah. her life is made more difficult because she's a woman yes um and she's she's right from the start she's used the fact she's a woman is exploited to help with a case there's something else crawford does later on as well and it's like yeah I, I knew when that was they're the in the funeral home yeah when they're in the funeral That's- home he basically takes the the chief, yes. chief of police aside to talk about the case, basically implying that they shouldn't talk about it in front of Clarice because she's a woman. Yes, and, yeah, and, and, and he, he acknowledges, which I think is interesting for Crawford, he acknowledges he's, he's not doing it because he thinks Clarice can't handle it. He's doing it because he wants to, to put the willies up the, the um, chief of police, doesn't he? Well, he kind of says... Um, yeah, I, I think essentially he wants to to show control and power, mm-hmm. and the only person he can show that control and power over in that moment is Clarice. Yeah, um, well, I, I, my read is that he thinks probably accurately that the the chief of police is the kind of person who thinks a woman shouldn't be involved in that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think you're right, and there. he's he's playing up to that at that point. But it's it's a kind of mercenary attitude that he's got. Yeah, and Clarice if... pulls him right up on it. Right, she says, you know, yeah. it matters. They look to you to see how to act. Mm. So y- y- you could tell, even if Crawford isn't directly expressing like misogyny towards Clarice, he's still benefiting from it. Yeah, he's still very <laughs> he's still much a cog it. in a misogynistic machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just aware that he can use that to his advantage. Yeah. So so yeah, this was all a long way of saying I I don't think it's it's what actually interestingly it's one of my partner's favorite horror films as well, mm. um, and I think you know, there's something about a maybe a more vulnerable but realistically vulnerable protagonist in that way. Not vulnerable, that's not the right word. Just that the expression of oppression she gets, I think, is is quite yeah. an unusual thing to see in a horror film like this. Yeah, and I think, I, I think she's she's also like emotionally expressive. You know, there's a, a beautiful scene where she she's crying by her car 
Yes. And you don't sort of see that a lot, either in horror films or in police procedurals, right? Like, the winner, the the protagonist who kind of comes out at the end, is never the one who shows weakness. Yeah, yeah. So it's a real subversion of that. Well, I mean, this is an interesting contrast to the thing, isn't it? Yes. So, yeah, when I was... So I did some reading about the film. As I said, there was that that comment where someone said, oh, um, uh, they're not a real uh, transsexual. And there's been a lot of comments that people have made about the film where they said it was never intended to be um, a kind of a comment on on transgender people. Um, but I don't understand how <laughs> you can make the primary theme of your film to be gender and sexual politics and not consider the fact that Jane is killing women and trying to dress up as women by wearing their skins and wants to have had... In fact, the way they, they find them uh, or, or one of the clues that leads them uh, leads Clarice to find them is the fact that they applied to have uh, sex reassignment surgery. Yes. Right? So I don't understand how you can put all those pieces in place and not claim that your portrayal reflects on, even if you accept that somehow there's a kind of legitimate and illegitimate form of being trans. Uh, I don't see how they can claim that this doesn't reflect on trans people having... James' character in the film in the way that they are. Yeah. I, and I, and I, I mean, I know the reason why, because it was the 90s and most people didn't think about it. <laughs> yeah, I I was really let down on this rewatch. You know, um, so many things were shown to me in a kind of, you know, like a sharp relief of what I've learned over the last 10 years Mm-hmm. Um, and how I've come to understand the world, and how I've come to understand myself as someone who doesn't identify as cisgender. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for a start, H- Hannibal Lecter is kind of he's the the oracle of the film, right? He's the person who explains what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, he answers the audience's questions, and so even though he is a psychotic serial killer cannibal, what he says. Will very not pog. yeah, very not pog. What he says, like, will get taken to heart by uninformed audiences because they're supposed to believe everything else he's saying. Like, they, he's yeah. set up to be this believable, trustworthy character despite yeah. everything. And he he says, um, Billy's not a real transsexual. He thinks he is. He tries to be. But the thing is, if you think you're trans, you're trans. Like, that's all it takes. And it's a horrible sort of gatekeeping where, you know, they talk about how Jane Gum has been denied sex reassignment surgery for reasons of, you know, nothing to do with how they feel about themselves, their fiscal situation, their abusive past. And then there's another scene, again, where Hannibal is acting as this voice of reason. He says he's not transsexual his pathology is a thousand times more savage, um, more <laughs> horrifying. Like, yeah. So you're starting from a baseline that being trans is hor- already savage and horrifying. <laughs> like, there's a, so there's a very infamous scene in the film where James Gum, our, our serial killer, is posing in front of a mirror and mm-hmm. tucks their genitals. Um, and kind of steps back and has this moment of like, 
I guess, gender euphoria, right? Seeing yeah, themselves. Yeah, yeah. They, they, so yeah. in a kind of horrifying twist, they are wearing the scalp of a previous victim <laughs> um, yeah. as, as like a wig. But the film takes this, which is something that, that trans people do, right? They bind us, they tuck, they pack, all, all these kinds of modifications and get to experience this euphoria. And they've taken this and they've completely turned it into something that's meant to portray this character as horrifying and it's set to a backdrop of his latest sorry their latest victim screaming yeah. from a dungeon and it's just the the whole conceit of of the killer collecting the skins of women and sewing a suit it, it just it's almost like you've taken the seeds of trans panic people being mm-hmm. scared of of trans people because they think well i don't know uh, uh, but also, but taken that and, and like ramped it up to you know it is kind of the furthest reaches of its possible conclusion you know yeah um, I, I totally agree I totally agree you've not said anything I've disagreed with Ali <laughs> <laughs> I just I, I feel ashamed of myself and embarrassed that I have said straight to the face of trans people Silence of the Lambs is my favorite film like <laughs> because. Even when you set aside the fact that it is, you know, if you think purely about Clarice's arc, even though all cops are bastards, <laughs> um, that is a point of view of, of, of me personally, not necessarily Peter or the podcast as a whole, you know, disclaimers. It's still an incredible feminist piece, right? Like it's, it's kind of held up as a, as a beacon of feminist work. The harm it did to trans people can't be like understated i think this film because it was such a critical success because it was it won five oscars it will genuinely have been a hurdle in the lives of of trans people for 30 years and i can never ever forgive it for that now knowing what i know like i feel like i have come out of watching that film going i don't have a favorite film anymore i can i cannot (laughs) call this film my favourite again. Like, like, I just... I can't. <laughs> and I, I feel like that's a very sombre thing to end with, but um, that was the point, right? The, to critically analyse um, these films. What, one of the things I came to this with, Ali, was I think it's rare that I watch a film, even, like, quite a bad film, in the horror genre, probably especially, that I don't take something positive from mm. and, and say, well, you know, you know, the script wasn't good, but, you know, this was good. Um, and I think especially with maybe low, low budget horror films, it reveals, you know, ideas and personality of the director that wants to come out. But maybe that point of view is it, it, from a posi- position of privilege, ignores the fact that the bad things can be actively harmful. Yeah. A bad film can be worse than, or, or or something that portrays something in a harmful way, can be can be worse than. Um, what am I trying to say? It can be worse than a waste of time, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and I think potentially, I, I understand you've got. I don't know, like maybe a bit of a feeling of anger at the film and at yourself. It's not purely the fault of the film. What it's doing. It, it, it's it's a product of, and this is I guess this is what I said said earlier on. It's a product of the society that made it, and of the fears of that society. Yeah. Um, 
And I'm not saying it's it's good that it, it was portrayed in the way it is, but it is revealing that that's the way that this character is portrayed in the film. Yes. Do you see, do you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I don't think they necessarily set out to villainize transgender people, oh, but no, that's certainly the not. outcome of what they have done. Yes, yes. I think denying that the portrayal wasn't good and therefore it was harmful. I don't know. There, there was a lot of that. I don't know any of the up-to-date points of view of, of the members of the cast, but it's hard to deny that, that you know your interpretation of this film. Yeah, I think... All I really know is that Jonathan Demme has kind of said, like reiterated, oh no, the the killer is not trans. And it just goes to show that over the last 20 years or whenever he made that quote, they still hasn't gained a better understanding of what, what it means to be trans. Yeah. Well, um, do we want to wrap up this film here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, What's in our, I'm having in an old notes. friend for dinner. <laughs> That's a good line, to be fair. Yeah. Like I said, there are some incredible parts of this film. I just think that the whole is less than the sum of the parts. Yeah. I, I think the other thing is that it really, because of the, the kind of the impact of the film and, the, and its critical success, it then spawned just an endless wave of other similar kind of psychological horror films like this. Mm. So if you look in... in I guess the rest of the 90s, there's stuff like Seven. Yeah. Very much in the mould of this. It, there's, um, what are the two films with Morgan Freeman? Uh, is it Kiss the Girls and Along Came a Spider? Sure. Um, even like looking at TV, you know, there's like gory, like Messiah, the gory BBC crime drama and Silent Witness, which I think started a couple of years after that. Uh, 96, I think that was. Um all that kind of like dark sort of neo noir, uh, gory investigation dramas, police procedural dramas like this, with the horror tinges to it. Um, so yeah, it's it's hard to deny that it was hugely influential. I guess. Yeah, it is an absolutely seminal piece, and that's part of why it's <laughs> part of the danger. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, um, is there anything else you want to say about either film? Um, any any contrasts between them? I think. The thing that makes the thing scary for me is it's not the alien, but it's mm-hmm. the undercurrent of paranoia and of not being able to trust people. And I do think that that is also reflected in The Silence of the Lambs, right? There's like this undercurrent of Clarice not really being able to trust people. Like she can't trust Crawford, he uses her as a pawn. She can't mm-hmm. trust Hannibal, he's a psychotic, murderous cannibal. Yeah. But I think though that is is shown off in in very very different ways obviously. Yes. Bro. Well, um what I about guess, you? I guess, <laughs> oh, uh, what about me? Yeah, I, probably probably the same. I guess the the isolation is is the Yeah. I, I did write in my notes I wrote isolation a few times as I was watching Silence of the Lambs. How alone Clarice is. Yes, uh, I think that's a really good point. And I guess that's yeah, that that's that's the real thing. One of the things I find scary in the thing as well is is the isolation, uh, the loneliness. Uh, maybe this will come up more as a theme as we watch more films as well. Yes, um, we'll see how it goes. So, have we decided what we're going to watch next? Well, I think the plan was to do a sort of found footage double bill with yes. the Blair Witch Project and Wreck. 
Yes, yes, two really good films. I don't mind saying both films I found incredibly scary when I first watched them. Yeah, I'm really excited to. Uh... Have, you, have you seen either of those? I have not seen either of them. No. Wow, it's going to be a fun one next time. I think they've there's a lot more overlap between those films. Um, yeah. There's a sequence in in Wreck which is going to be very interesting to compare to Silence of the Lambs. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, that'll be good fun. Uh, so yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that. I guess if people want to watch along, they can they can try and watch those films in the next period of time before we record again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have like a set kind of release schedule yet. We're still figuring out bits and pieces. In the meantime, Ali, where can people find more of you? I am on Twitter at Shanadin. That's S-H-A-N-O-D-I-N. And on Twitch uh, at the same username, Shanadin, where you can find me streaming a lot of stuff that's not a lot of horror, but a lot of other things. Yeah, what about you, Peter? Where can people find you? So I am on Twitter as Unitled. That's U-N-I-T-L-E-D. And if you're into card games, specifically... Arkham Horror, the card game, the living card game. I do a podcast called Drawn to the Flame, and we should be available on all good podcast providing services. Brilliant. Yeah, thanks for listening to our pilot episode, everyone. Thank you. And if you want to get in touch with us to let us know what you thought, you can find the podcast on Twitter at DoneToDeathCast or on Gmail at DoneToDeathCast at gmail.com.